Hello and welcome to eConversations. I'm your host, Dr. Dan Sutter with the Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University. We've all heard the term robber barons and know that the name is not used as a compliment. The 19th century American businessmen who have been dubbed this title built many of the leading businesses of the day and amassed great fortunes. But did they do this by somehow robbing or cheating the average American? Or did they help create value and build our prosperity that we have today? Joining me here today on eConversations to talk about this question is my guest, Dr. Bert Folsom, who is a professor of history from Hillsdale College in Michigan. Dr. Folsom has written a book called The Myth of the Robber Barons, and it's based on that book that we're going to be talking about here today. Dr. Folsom, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dana. It's good to be with you. Well, let's get started here. It's sort of like an overview. When people use the term robber barons, what exactly do they, they have in mind? They're not being complimentary. The term was developed by Matthew Josephson, who was a socialist, a journalist <laughs> back in the 1930s and it was meant as a negative term. They're, they're thinking of people who pillaged and were in what we might call today crony capitalism. Mm -hmm. uh, the problem is that Josephson lumped in those who were taking government subsidies and using government in some way to help their business with those who were mm. operating in a free market and were receiving no government subsidies. And although the original robber barons were back in the late 1800s, uh, it's still a issue and there's a, this myth or the perception that the leading uh, capitalists of that era were somehow robber barons, it still has a lot of uh, impact on our discussions about economics or government or business uh, even today. I mean, I certainly rec see that many times in our students. I think you're right uh, that that term, the robber barons, is, has been labeled to that whole generation of entrepreneurs and businessmen in the late 1800s. I just make the interesting point that the United States before these so-called robber barons was a second-rate power, mm -hmm. lagging way behind England and Germany. But uh, after that generation, if we look at uh, history in about 1900, we will see that we were a first-rate economic power in mm -hmm. chemicals, in steel, uh, with railroad development, right. and oil. The United States was had the leading edge, so the so-called robber barons certainly didn't do anything negative to the industrial impact of the United States. So, as a, a whole, then they they did largely many of them did largely contribute to uh, our economy and our economic growth. Right? Very much so, uh, especially I draw the distinction here between the market entrepreneurs right. and the political entrepreneurs. The, the ones who receive federal subsidies, the crony capitalists, the ones who today might be compared with the ones who receive subsidies from the Export-Import Bank or various kind of protective tariffs, uh, those really didn't contribute very much mm -hmm. to U.S. history. But the ones who contributed trying to produce a quality product in a free market, give you a good price and a quality product, and win by producing that product and selling it to customers, those people really contributed to the United States. So let's start then with, I guess, the. the the richest of the our 19th century uh, American capitalists, uh, John Rockefeller. Yes. And his, his, the company he built, Standard Oil, revolutionized the uh, oil industry. But he was also one that was singled out as you know, having used some, uh, I guess as our previous slide you suggested, some ethically questionable methods perhaps to, to, sure. to rise to his position of prominence. Before we get into what exactly did, just tell us a little bit about Standard Oil. We know it was involved in the oil industry, but it wasn't really involved in the oil exploration or drilling for oil part no. of the industry, Correct. was it? 
Yes, that's right. The, uh, John D. Rockefeller, who founded the company Standard Oil in, in the mid to late 1800s, was not interested so much in in getting the oil out of the ground as he was in refining. He was mm -hmm. really a refining of oil business. So he, he would take the oil and refine it and then distribute it and sell it from there. And did Rockefeller, I mean, actually in Standard Oil, did they actually help average Americans? Well, they did. They helped average Americans very much. We know that oil is a, an extremely important export. Most people don't realize that oil that was produced in the 1800s was not used for gasoline because we didn't have cars mm -hmm. until the 1900s. But the oil that was produced in the 1800s was mainly for kerosene, for mm -hmm. lamps, because this was before electricity was, was very prominent. And we would have people lighting their homes with kerosene. So the number one purpose of the oil that was refined in the late 1800s was for kerosene. Here we have a, a graph showing from some numbers that you had from your, sure. your book to show what happened to the price of kerosene. And it's 1865 was, I believe, when Rockefeller started the yes. Standard Oil Company. And see, within about 15 years, the price of kerosene had, had fallen very dramatically. And first off, from an economist pointing out here, this this would seem to be an odd monopoly because usually the fear of monopolies is that they're going to raise prices, and this is a, a monopoly. If it was a monopoly, it was lowering prices. But le leaving that aside, I mean, this price uh, decrease was dramatic in, in and of itself, but it, it really impacted average Americans' lives in, in a very important way, didn't it? Well, it certainly did. If you look at this chart, that 58 cents to 26 to 8 cents, which is so much lower. Uh, what we're talking about here is once you get down to this eight cents a gallon, this is uh, the kerosene price, is that the average American could light his or her home, provide lighting in the home for one cent an hour. Mm -hmm. Now, what that has the impact of, because whale oil was the, uh, the agent that was used before this to light homes. Whale oil is expensive. You have to catch and kill whales. So Rockefeller, I guess, was the first save the whales man because he ended up with the eight cents for kerosene. You dig the oil out of the ground, refine it, and kerosene, and so for one cent an hour, much cheaper than whale oil, mm -hmm. people could light their homes at night, and that opens up new vistas for people because now, instead of having to be totally dependent upon night and day in the sun, the they could now have a nightlife, so they, I mean, you could go to to school at night, you could have various forms of entertainment. All of a sudden, the evening became a time where people could really engage in some of the same activities they do in the day. Mm -hmm. And it extends the day of the average American, and John D. Rockefeller was heavily responsible for this. It was really almost as if people got to live longer, because yes. they certainly got to do more with their, their nighttime right. hours, and especially you know during the winter months when night comes pretty early, darkness comes pretty early. It does. It had to be a, a pretty boring life to have to largely go to sleep or sit in the dark. Right, they couldn't do video games or anything <laughs> that was fun. Yeah, so you had that, you're definitely right, Dan, that, that it, it, it's a transformative effect to bring the prices down like that. Mm -hmm. Makes, it opens up new possibilities for Americans they simply didn't have before. Now, Nonetheless, uh, some people would look at uh, uh, Rockefeller's success and have suggested he used uh, 
untoward methods to achieve that success. Um, Standard Oil being de depicted as this monster that's uh, sucking the lifeblood out of America. Ida Tarbell was a, a, one of the muckraking writers who uh, penned this famous uh, history of the Standard Oil Company and made all these allegations about uh, Rockefeller. So there's certainly a, a view amongst some historians in, in, in some of the historical records suggesting that Rockefeller did all these uh, untoward things. And did he? Do a lot of nasty things to build his uh, business, or did he build it through w more legitimate, say, market uh, ways? Yeah, he was a market entrepreneur using legitimate ways. Uh, this book is a muckraking book. Uh, I do recommend one chapter in that book that's called The Genuine Greatness of Standard Oil. <laughs> but uh, the, uh, she takes a lot of swipes at Rockefeller, and we have to look a little bit at her background and look at then at some of the things she says. She, her background is in the oil industry. Her father was in the oil industry and was producing oil at a higher price than Rockefeller. Mm -hmm. In other words, whereas Rockefeller, as that graph suggests, is producing oil at eight cents a gallon, her father was producing oil at a higher price. So if he's producing at ten percent and or ten cents a gallon and Rockefeller at eight, people are buying Rockefeller's oil. And she said it was very disruptive for her childhood because mm -hmm. her father, who was in the oil industry, could not compete. So she heard negative things about Rockefeller, how good he was and how competitive. And that naturally irritated her. And she ultimately ended up writing a criticism of Rockefeller. And some of the things she said was he received rebates that were tremendous from railroads to ship on those railroads. But one of the reasons that he received those large rebates, Dan, was that he was the biggest customer that the mm -hmm. oil companies had. He never had the largest rebates until he was the biggest customer. And then he received the discounts that often come with doing business. Uh, the complaint we have is that he received drawbacks, which is mm -hmm. a discount on oil produced by his competitors, which is true, he did. But he was providing the state-of-the-art oil equipment for his competitors. He would have his oil loaded onto the tankers that the railroads were using to transport the oil from, say, New York to Chicago. And he would offer to leave that equipment there, and his competitors could load with his state-of-the-art equipment. But he would charge them for it, and mm -hmm. those were called drawbacks. So those are some of the criticisms that he received. People uh, also, she, she cited heavily criticisms that when Rockefeller would offer to buy property of oil companies that could not stay in the business, he sometimes would make an offer. She'd say they, he lowballed them. Mm -hmm. but. Rockefeller often said that he was buying equipment that was outmoded. It really wasn't worth very much. It would be like uh, making a bid on a company that had a lot of dot matrix com com computers back from 30 years ago. Right. Well, you're not going to give those the same value that the people paid for the computers. And so there were accusations that R Rockefeller lowballed, but of course uh, they, they could have turned down the offer. So, mm -hmm. uh, no, I mean, so then how was Rockefeller able to, to uh, accomplish, you know, you mentioned he didn't get the large rebates until he was actually yes. the largest producer. So how did he manage to, uh, to get to be the largest producer? How did he manage to drive down the, the price so much? I think that's the good question. How did, what did Rockefeller do to get that price from 58 to 8 cents? He did a few things. Number one, he was, uh, when you take a, a barrel of oil, it, 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 it's not all kerosene, it's mm -hmm. different byproducts. His chemists, and he paid for research and development, he was very innovative in research and development. His chemists paid to have 
the, uh, uh, he paid his chemists to develop processes to get more kerosene out of a barrel of oil. Mm -hmm. They developed an innovation called cracking. And that innovation with high intense heat applied on oil would produce more kerosene per barrel. So he's getting more kerosene out of a barrel of oil. The other thing is he's using the byproducts. Mm -hmm. Other oil producers would get the kerosene and then throw the sludge in the Cuyahoga River in Cleveland or out in the West Pennsylvania oil, uh, oil fields. Well, Rockefeller was a strong Christian, and he said, if God made something, there's a purpose to it. Mm -hmm. So there's a purpose to those byproducts. So we need to have the chemists figure out what good they are. So he had his chemists producing from the byproducts, from, from material that others were throwing away. He was producing things like paint, uh, various waxes, candle wax, Vaseline, naphtha, uh, various tars for paving, mm -hmm. all of these byproducts. And so he went into the businesses of producing these byproducts. And then he would tell his competitors, uh, you know, let's be environmentally sound. Let's not throw our <laughs> byproducts into the river. I'll stop by and pick them up. And so he, he might use some of his competitors' byproducts so that Rockefeller was making full use right. of a barrel of oil. That's very fascinating. You know, it, it was, some people might look to the fact that like, uh, Rockefeller eventually amassed like $900 million at, at the time. Yes. It was an unfathomable fortune. I mean, many people would look at that and say, well, if he's got so rich, I mean, surely he must have gotten rich at the expense of somebody else. <laughs> so if, if he profited so much, it must have been people like maybe Ida Tarbell's father or others that he must have taken the money from, or consumers or, or somebody that he must have been taking the money from. How would you respond to that? Yeah, that's the zero-sum game theory of economics, which is to say if somebody's winning, somebody else must be losing because there's a finite amount of wealth. And in a lot of world history, I suppose to some extent at least that may be true, but the Industrial Revolution changed a lot in capital and investment. And it's possible to get rich and actually create jobs for others. So that Rockefeller, by attracting investment into the oil fields, not only made people who invested in Standard Oil rich, and not only improved the lives of people who bought his oil, but then in all the communities in which Standard Oil has a presence, they're creating jobs, which then creates income for people who want to sell rings to people who are going to get married, mm -hmm. uh, are going to school teachers, and all of this. So that there's a genuine multiplier effect, as we sometimes call it, from Standard mm -hmm. Oil. And uh, Rockefeller attracted perhaps millions of jobs, if you count all the connected jobs with the oil jobs, mm -hmm. in the United States. And that helps explain why the United States became a nation of immigrants in the late 1800s. Huge amounts of European right. immigration, in part, to work in places like Standard Oil. And you also mentioned there, there's an international or global oil market at the same yes. time. And, and Rockefeller's cost-cutting uh, actually turned out to be very important for our nation in terms of being able to compete in that market, right? Absolutely, because the oil industry is centered in the United States. Here you have a major industrial enterprise. The heart of that enterprise is in the United States. Rockefeller Standard Oil Company, this is hard to imagine for people today, but the market share, the world market share of that company in the late 1800s was about 65%, sometimes as high as 70%. So in other words, roughly two-thirds of the oil produced in, uh, that is sold, refined and sold in the world, 
was sold by that company, Standard Oil, in the whole world. Mm -hmm. Not just in the United States. The, the, the market share of one American oil company was two-thirds of the oil sold in the entire world. So that income and that capital investment is coming into the United States. And it was all stemming from actual value creation. It wasn't just money that was being taken from foreigners. They were buying his product willingly and, and with a lot of comp competition from like Russia and, and other countries that also had oil. The United States wasn't the only country with oil. So I mean, it was really through value creation that he was bringing those jobs to the United States, right? Very much so, Dan. As you pointed out, Russia was a major competitor, and Russia had some advantages. They were near the Baku oil fields nor in north uh, in uh, Iran, and the, the Russians had some of that in Iran. So, so that what you had was the Russians had close proximity to vast quantities of very rich oil, mm -hmm. and so and plus they were nearer the European market. Right. So Rockefeller had to be able to export his oil across the ocean, get it over there, and compete with the Russians. And the Russians, at times, were subsidizing their own oil ends. Mm -hmm. Ro the Rockefeller never sought and never secured a subsidy for the American oil industry. So this was not at a cost to the taxpayers. But it was Rockefeller simply being so much better than everybody else in the world, his company, so efficient that he was able to produce those results for his company and for the United Infinite. States. Another of the uh, robber barons that you talk about in your book is uh, James J. Hill, and who, who was one, built one of the, the transcontinental railroads. Um, and he was actually the Great Northern Railroad uh, across one of the, I guess probably the, at the time, more remote parts of the, the country, uh, North Dakota, Montana, and so forth. Look at forth. that railroad, it's right next to Canada. Yeah. It's not in a place that you would think would be the best place to put a railroad. And although this could be a, a topic for an entire different show, but he managed to build this railroad without a lot of help from the government, right? Well, with no help from the government, really. Uh, the, the Union Pacific, which is gonna come right from Omaha, right here to Sacramento, all the way across, is going to be our first transcontinental railroad, and they received a federal subsidy. Mm -hmm. Central Pacific, too. You, you have the two railroads coming across. The, it was a, they were terrible railroads in the sense that they lost money, especially the Union Pacific, went bankrupt, and cost the taxpayers a lot of money. Hill said, let's do it right with no federal aid. Hill was a market entrepreneur. And Hill built his railroad from St. Paul to Seattle with no federal subsidy. And he did it piece by piece. He would, he would go into North Dakota and make the farmland profitable. Mm -hmm. He would go into Montana and make the copper industry, work with to make the copper industry profitable. He would move into the state of Washington there and help make the timber industry profitable. And so he would work with the local area, slowly, methodically developing exports that he could take on the Great Northern. He built the railroad slowly, methodically, effectively. And it was, many people think, the best built, or certainly one of the best built railroads in the United States. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned that before Hill built his railroad, we did have like the Central Pacific and the, the Union Pacific Railroads. And they were the ones that came together, the famous Golden Spike, to build the first transcontinental Correct. railroad. But they were heavily subsidized by the government, as you mentioned. They were. In fact, to put it this way, the national debt of the United States in 1860 was about six, a little over $60 million. We spent $60 million 
on that transcontinental railroad, the Union Pacific and Central Pacific. We paid each of the railroads mileage for, for mile, uh, money for every mile they built, and then we gave free land. I'm not even including the free right. land that we gave the railroads. But those railroads, the Union Pacific, w w was so poorly built that it had to be rebuilt, much of it had to be rebuilt after it was originally built. It went broke and it showed the problems. Let me give you just one example, Dan. When you give, when you tell a railroad, we're going to subsidize you and give you money for every mile you build, well, all of a sudden the railroad began to take a curvaceous look to it, right? Because you get more miles and you get more money. Mm -hmm. But that's not the best way to build a railroad. Hill was building a railroad trying to make it profitable so the sh you go the shortest route possible. Right. And that was Hill's decision, and Hill's, Hill's railroad was a better railroad. And we also have a, a picture here of one of the uh, transcontinental railroad entrepreneurs, but a very different type of entrepreneur than Hill. And this is, I think, Henry uh, Villard. Uh, yes. Right? And, and he was what you call in your book a, a political entrepreneur. You've used that term, but why don't you elaborate on that a little bit? Henry Villard built the Northern Pacific Railroad, which was another subsidized railroad that was very near to Hill's Railroad. And that railroad, Villard, for example, one thing he did is he said, oh, I'm, you know, I'm having federal help here of various kinds, especially with the land. And he says, I'll just build my railroad on these scenic routes, you know, and I'll, I'll do all sorts of interesting things for the people on the railroad. Well, most people who are on a railroad, they want to get from point A to point B. They don't care about the scenic route, which is longer and more expensive. His railroad went bankrupt. And Hill wanted to buy it up as a secondary road. Ultimately, he had problems with this, and this went, became a Supreme Court case. The great northern, uh, the, called the Northern Securities case, and under Teddy Roosevelt, it was broken up. And there was a voluntary transaction of Smith, uh, of uh, rather of Hill buying up that railroad, mm -hmm. was disallowed by the government because of the potential that it had for restraining trade. Mm -hmm. And that was an intervention that perhaps was very unfortunate because Hill was the best railroad, one of the best, or maybe the best railroad operator in the United States. Uh. And you, this gets into the issue here that uh, we did see government policy change in part to, in response to the perceived excesses of, of people like Rockefeller and, yes. and Hill. We had, saw the Interstate Commerce Commission uh, come into effect to regulate railroad rates. Uh, the, uh, the Sherman Antitrust Act was passed. And a lot of this was uh, in response to stories like Ida Tarbell's uh, uh, muckraking exposés and, and Frank Norris's uh, famous novel of the octopus about the, I guess was the uh, Central Pacific or Southern Pacific uh, right. Railroad, one of the subsidized railroads. Right. Um, in some ways, these acts were passed in response to the actions of the political entrepreneurs as much as any uh, sins of the market entrepreneurs, right? I think you're right. Uh, you're right. The Central Pacific became the Southern Pacific and, and was the heart of this novel. When I wrote my book, The Myth of the Robber Barons, that was telling this story here with Hill and, and with Rockefeller and various types of entrepreneurs, I was responding a lot to that book because it's tr it, there's a lot of truth in that book. There, mm -hmm. there was a lot of political manipulation by the, the, the Southern Pacific Railroad. And a lot of times, as, as you just said, Dan, you'll, you'll see the ICC, the Interstate Commerce Commission, or the Sherman Antitrust Act passed to deal with the 
irregularities created by government subsidies. Mm -hmm. And yet it, it, they ended up being, the antitrust acts ended up being imposed or, or uh, affecting people like Rockefeller yeah. when Standard Oil was broken up and, and Hill when his uh, acquisition of, of the, the Northern Pacific was, was not allowed, right? Correct. Hill's acquisition of the Northern Pacific was not allowed and Rockefeller was broken up, yeah. Standard Oil. And the irony here is that if you look at markets, it's hard to maintain a high market share. Rockefeller had of course, was the biggest company. It's hard to, uh, to maintain that over a long period of time. Rockefeller was already in decline, his company, at the point that he was broken <clears throat> up because he had chosen his, his successors not to invest in the Texas oil fields. Mm -hmm. They chose to believe the U.S. geological report that there was no oil in Texas. <laughs> they did not invest in Texas, so when the Texas oil came in and California oil came in, uh, Rockefeller didn't own uh, any of that land and wasn't refining oil right. down in Texas. So the market share of Standard Oil was steadily dropping throughout the early 1900s and he was broken up in mm -hmm. 1911 and disallowed. So uh, that's a strange result. The, the last of the uh, entrepreneurs from your book we wanted, uh, wanted to talk about today is uh, this is a gentleman, Cornelius Vanderbilt or Commodore Vanderbilt who built both railroads and, and steamships. And, He's a fascinating character because he was often battling uh, monopolies himself, although he was a market entrepreneur. Tell us a little bit about He's a wonderful history. man, the first American to be worth $100 million. And he achieved that by producing quality products at competitive prices, often competing against people who had a government subsidy and were producing worse products at, at, at less competitive prices. Yes, in steamships, railroads. Steamship production, excellent. Cut costs, made it possible for immigrants to travel over to the United States from mm -hmm. Europe, very good prices. His railroad was the New York Central, high quality railroad from New York to Chicago, excellent railroad. He produced very good products, consumers benefited. Now, just one thing to, to mention is, is uh, Vanderbilt University is uh, generous, uh, benefited from his uh, from, from the Vanderbilt fortune. And Rockefeller as well was a, a great philanthropist. So I mean, any of these robber barons, not only do they not necessarily, the market entrepreneurs not use questionable methods to uh, achieve their monies, uh, they were actually quite generous with their monies once they uh, generated their fortunes, right? Yes, property rights are strong and they believe that property rights should be and it's so important to a market economy and a, a good functioning economy. But what you do with your own money is your own business and Rockefeller, being a strong Christian, wanted to tithe. He tithed from the first money he ever earned and he was a generous giver. He, he, he would often give millions of dollars every year to charity. Uh, Vanderbilt, not as much of a giver, but he did start Vanderbilt University. Rockefeller's money went to a lot of colleges, Tuskegee College mm -hmm. here in Alabama, and where he wanted to help black education, and Vanderbilt started Vanderbilt University mm -hmm. in Nashville. Well, very, it's been a very fascinating conversation. Any uh, final thoughts, you, anything we didn't get to that you sort of wanted to add here in, in concluding? Well, I would say that these Whenever you're in business, the, often the businessmen don't write memoirs mm -hmm. and don't tell their story. Journalists like to write. They make their living writing. Entrepreneurs make their living doing, producing competitive products 
at prices that consumers like. They like the products and they go away. The entrepreneur spends his time producing them and they don't often write much. The journalist and the college professor often says, my gosh, I should be worth that much. With all my education and abilities, this entrepreneur is way overrated. Mm -hmm. So the sentiment for intervention is often at the writing end with the scribblers, with the producers, giving the people what they want. Well, thank you so much. This is such an important topic. I'm glad we had a chance to talk about it. And thank you for joining us. Join us again next time for another eConversations. <laughs>